Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Hey there, history fans, and welcome to another episode of the History Explains It All podcast. Come with us as we delve into historical topics, big and small, obscure and weird, earth-shattering, and maybe a little spooky, with your host Lauren and Melissa. So, today's episode, we are covering the mystic John Dee. Who's that? (laughs) Basically answering the question of who he is and what he did. (laughs) But before we start, we've got our little segment called Weird History. So what are we learning today? So, I know you grew up in the 90s, Lauren. I don't... (laughs) 90s kids. 90s baby here. But I don't know if you remember Domino's mascot called the Noid. I don't. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I showed you a picture of it, you might... But, so... I might. It started back in 86. There was... Obviously, you had Domino's, Pizza Hut... Papa John's, I think, had already started at that point. So you had competing pizza companies, and Domino's had started its 30 minutes or its free campaign, and they needed a mascot. And so they created the Noid, which the best description I could find is a gibbering, pot-bellied, buck-toothed pervert squeezed into a skin-tight rabbit suit. We'll have a picture on the... Well, we'll have a picture for you guys in the description. He's essentially, the name, the Noid is short for annoying, and it was a character created, very Hamburglar-esque, like the McDonald's Hamburglar, and the commercials were supposed to promote the 30-minute delivery, and the Noid would try to uh, steal your pizzas essentially um, through the commercial so that you wouldn't get it so that it wouldn't be free. You know, it's essentially a pizza stealer. And the, the the Noid itself ran from 86 to 95 and was actually brought to life by Will Vinton Studios, the creator behind the Claymation California Raisins commercials. Okay. So think of a purple bunny suit, buck tooth, fat looking rabbit kind of a character in Claymation. That's trying to steal your pieces. It's a very weird mascot to begin with. And Why it has, would you okay that? 
It was the 80s. I mean, I understand that I was very young. And when I say very young, I mean very young. You weren't even born by the time this came out. When it originally came out, it, I was not. However, by the time it ended, yes, I, I was very much alive. <laughs> but even in my mind right now, I'm going, who okays this stuff? Who approves this? And what in the world were they thinking when they went, yep, approved, click. <laughs> like, what? Huh? It was the 80s. That's all I'm going to say. That's horrible. That's but, not even funny. That's just horrible. Well, you haven't heard the rest of the story. Oh, Lord. I should be scared. Yes. So, the Noid was weird and popular enough that he actually appeared in other commercials. He appeared in video games, and he actually had an appearance on Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. But that's not the biggest story behind the Noid. So back in January, on January 30th in 1989, there was a 22-year-old schizophrenic named Kenneth Noid. Coincidence, I think so. Whose last name was actually spelled N-O-I-D, just like the Noid. And he had, after this ad campaign came out, he believed that the, the founder, Tom Monahan, had actually created the Avoid the Noid campaign as a persecution against him so people would avoid Kenneth Noid. So on January 30th, uh, he actually goes into a Domino's Pizza in Atlanta, Georgia with a 325 Magnum and takes two of the employees hostage for five hours. He, and he demands, I've had sources say 10,000 and sources say 100,000. Demands a getaway car and the weirdest part, asks for the book, The Widow's Son. But do you want to know how he got caught? Any thoughts? I'm already so confused <laughs> by this whole thing. The hostages were able to escape, and the police came in due to Kenneth ordering a pizza and eating it while having the hostages trapped with him inside this Domino's pizza. Yeah. He was actually found not guilty by reason of insanity, which I... Can't think of any other conclusion you'd make to this case. And he was actually sent to a mental facility, which he was in until his death in action 1995, which is also when Domino's decided to retire the Noid. Because that would be rather rude. No, let's keep the Noid. <laughs> let's keep this weird, strange mascot thing. Purpley rabbit thing. I can't, I, I'm speechless. Mm. I remember mm. the I remember the Noid. I wasn't old enough to remember the incident, but I definitely grew up with the Noid commercials, and they are weird. That's they they sound cringeworthy. Just about, just the about the whole scenario is cringeworthy. Like I'm sitting here cringing and absolutely speechless as to the junk that just came out in that weird history <laughs> segment. Like ew, <laughs> ew. Did I mention ew? <laughs> Well, our next topic isn't quite so ew. It's more of a ooh. We're going to talk about John D. and his laugh. A little bit more about who was he. What did he do and why is he so famous? Or infamous? I was going to say, he's not that famous because, to be honest, I'm there. You didn't know about him. I didn't know about him and several people 
that I've met that I have spoken to, like, who's John D? Well, that's what we're going to answer today. Who is he? So John D was born in 1527 in London, England. He was a mathematician and a philosopher who also actually ended up studying the occult. Yes. That's that's really what's going to be more of today's focus is the occult, but just to give some more of his background. He was sort of an all-around renaissance man. Outside of the actual painting and artistry, he was an alchemist, astrologer, scientist, doctor, astronomer, geographer, mathematician. Learned more or less anything he can probably get his hands on. Basically, very big on the education side of things, especially in the 1500s. I mean, that that's an yeah. achievement. He did receive his bachelor's degree in 1545 and his master's degree in 1548, both from the same college of St. John's College in Cambridge, England. Uh, he actually ended up continuing his studies in 1548 and traveling at the same time, like continued his studies and traveled on continental Europe for a period of time where he studied under uh, Pedro Nunes and Abraham Ortilius. And I think around that same time, he actually became friends with uh, Mercator, who's actually known for his Mercator maps. Most people will know him for that. And also became friends with Tycho Brahe, the uh, yeah. physicist. Or stronger? I can't remember. Phys- I think he's a physicist, physicist from what I remember. I remember him from my physics class, so I want to say that, yeah. Yeah, probably. I mean, physics was never my forte, personally. I thought, I thought physics was super fun. but I'm You weird. thought physics was super fun. I despised it, but <laughs> that was me. I think physics was the most difficult class that I ever took. Well, John Dee didn't think classes were pretty difficult. He actually, he, he actually once said, I think it was actually even written in his diary, that he owed most of his educational success to studying 18 hours a day and only sleeping four hours every night. Yeah, no, I can't do that. Uh-uh. I can't be like you, John D. I wish I could, but... I can maybe do six hours a night, but I prefer my eight to 12. Oh, sleep? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like my sleep. Oh. I love studying, but I like my sleep. We are very good at being sleep people. <laughs> Morning? I don't understand the concept of the word of which you speak, but... D actually set his sights on the Royal Court of England. That's where he wanted to actually work and be in. His dad actually worked under Henry VIII. He was a gentleman's servant. So he had been uh, introduced into courtly life as he was growing up. So I I think it really appealed to him to want to do that. In fact, that led to him turning down certain professorships at the Sorbonne in Paris and in the Oxford Oxford University. Uh, uh, Oxford University, yeah. (laughs) Um, And he actually did enter the English court and worked under Mary, Queen Mary I, Henry VIII's daughter, a.k.a. Bloody Mary. If you don't know Mary I, who we're talking about, you will know her as Bloody Mary. Um, And he worked as an instructor in mathematics and science for the Royal Courtiers and Navigators under her. And he also ended up working as an astrologer for her, which actually led him to be put in prison <laughs> under her because Mary was very, very Catholic. So it led to the idea of him being a conjurer, and he actually ended up getting thrown into prison in 1555 under her rule. I'm not surprised the Tower of London wasn't exactly empty under Mary's rule. 
It was rather full, and she was known as Bloody Mary for burning people at the stakes. What can you expect? However, um, in 1558, M Mary had died. So Queen Mary dies, and she had no children. And so her half-sister, the other daughter of Henry VIII, known as Elizabeth I, who brought about the Golden Age of England, becomes queen. And when she took the throne of England, Dee actually became a medical advisor to her. She became, he became her medical advisor, which that's a, that's a big step in the royal court. Not even that. She trusted him so much as her astrologer and, and mathematician, geographer, everything. She trusted him to actually name her coronation date. Yes. She, yes, she did. I actually remember reading about that. She named the coronation date, and then using that, um, that coronation date, he actually predicted how her reign would go as Queen of England. And I mean, she reigned for over 40 years, mm -hmm. and she ushered in, like I said, the golden age of England. I mean, this was one of the most prosperous ages that England's ever seen. He was actually pretty instrumental in some of the expansion, a lot of the voyages of some of the, the sailors at that time. Oh, yeah. Side note, he and Queen Elizabeth would often write letters to each other, which were written in code. And it's, I think there's a couple in the British Museum, and Dee actually signs them. Instead of signing his own name, he signed them 007. <laughs> That's maybe where that comes from. I wonder. And for all of you who don't like math, or possibly even do like math... Me. Don't like. <laughs> he was the one to introduce into English lexicon the plus, minus, divide, and multiplication symbols. Darn you, John D. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind simplistic math. I actually don't mind math that much. I don't love it, but I don't hate it. But back to John D. <laughs> He, he he used his math, math mathematical and and geographical skills to help with the navigators well, who were plotting. He became the, new the instructor. World. He yeah. became the instructor for seafarers, captains, and in, in in navigation, and ended up actually providing them with their instruments and maps. Yep, and there was the exhibition of Frobisher in 70, 1576 to fifteen seventy eight, and was also involved in discussions in locating the Northwest Passage as well. And one of my favorite stories that I'd come across was when he had helped out uh, Humphrey Gilbert's voyage. So he was an English explorer who took a, a voyage in 1583. And because John Dee was so instrumental in advising Gilbert, Gilbert offered Dee the rights to any land that Gilbert claimed that was from the 50th parallel to the North Pole. Now, Gilbert didn't survive the voyage, so Dee didn't get any of the claims, but had Gilbert arrived and lived through this voyage, it's probable that Dee would have owned most of Canada. Sweet. It's not a bad piece of land to own. <laughs> Very interesting. I mean, but Dee's most famous for his occult. Yes, he had, uh, he believed he could talk with angels and mm -hmm. see angels or he could communicate with them, but he couldn't do it alone. He he would make various notes in his diaries for about what they were doing, 
Um, he did try with two previous sort of scribes that he believed could actually communicate with his angels, mm-hmm. but they didn't do so well. And then he found Edward Kelly. Oh, let's get into this guy. Hmm. Edward Kelly was his partner for quite a long period of time, actually. And they traveled the continent together with their wives. <laughs> he started off in England and then eventually traveled. Yeah, I mean, he met him in England, I think, and then ended up, they ended up sailing across the English Channel, across into year, actual continental Europe, and then traveling. And they were looking for, at the same time, a sponsor and um, uh, a patronage. Sorry, a patron. They were looking for a patron, but they were also... John Dee relied on Edward Kelly to communicate with the angels. Right. So Edward Kelly claimed he could talk to and could see these angels and higher spirits and then would relay the information to John Dee who would actually write it down, which is where we get the Enochian language from, Mm -hmm. which John Dee actually said was a pre-Semitic... Thank you. Pre-Semitic language, like a, a, the base for which that language comes from, because it's called Enochian based off of the prophet Enoch. But given modern technology, they've looked into it, and it's very much believed that either John Kelly, or sorry, Edward Kelly and John D came up with it together, or D came up with it himself, because it's got a lot of similarities to act, to English as opposed to Semitic. That's true. That's true. By the way, Enoch, that, I, I got debatable information on who it's named after. I mean, it's named after a Enoch, but um, Enoch, you had a prophet. I had the wandering Enoch in, in my sources, which, by the way, you can find it in the Old Testament or Torah in Genesis, in the book of Genesis. I think it's in book, I think it's in five. I don't remember the chapter. I'd have to look it up. But give you a little background on Edward Kelly. Oh, goody. He was pretty much a money guy. Anything he could make money off of, anything to make him famous, to make him popular was his game. He would he got jailed for various accounts of fraud, for counterfeiting. There was even one where he actually had gained a, a reputation as being a necromancer and an alchemist because back that time everyone was looking for the philosopher's stone or being able to turn uh, bases into gold or any, uh, anything you could turn into gold really, which obviously didn't actually work. But there was one story I came across where Kelly had a wealthy patron and took this wealthy patron and some of the servants out into a nearby park late one night and began gestating and citing wild incantations and just essentially gibberish on the part of Kelly, but to the wealthy patron, he thought he was performing magic. And then they go to a nearby cemetery. Kelly exhumes the body of a recently buried corpse and then decides to play ventriloquist with this corpse and make it utter kind of nonsense about the future for this wealthy patron. Yeah, that's necromancy. (laughs) Yep. 
That gives you an idea. I mean, if you're a fraud as people claimed Kelly was, he's going to do whatever it takes. Yeah, he was an absolute con man. Oh, yeah, he was. I mean, I think we both came across this story, but we came across it, across across it with a different patron. Like, you had a different patron than I did. Because I had that while he was working with D, he and Kelly received the patronage of a bohemian count named Willem Rosenberg. And then D left. D oh, that was later on when they were traveling the yeah. continent. This was Edward Kelly's life prior to meeting This D. is, I, oh, okay. Yeah. No, that's later on when they go to... Because I didn't come across that story. No, this is, that was later on when they are going into Bohemia and going around Poland before they meet... Hold the Holy Roman Emperor. Emperor. Yes. See, you had Holy Roman Emperor. I had Bohemian uh, Count or we'll Duke. We'll get to that, though. We will get to it. Yeah. D, as we said, was into any, any kind of education he could get his hands on. So he actually started, uh, once he got into the court of Queen Elizabeth, he founded his base and yeah. his home in Mortlake which is what his, his home is called. And he had a laboratory there. He had a library there. He would advise people there. Scholars were allowed to come in and use his library. And at the time, his library was the largest privately owned library in the entire, of, entirety of the British Empire, I think, at the least, at the very least, England, with over 4,000 books, which at that time in the 1560s was a ton of books. It's still a ton it's of books. Still a lot of books, but unfortunately, not too many of them actually survive because when Dee and his wife and Edward Kelly and his wife decide to go on a trip around the continent to perform for wealthy patrons and kings and even the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Dee's brother-in-law decided to house it. He had him no. house it and, and watch the house. And scholars and people would come to check out these books. But his brother wasn't paying much of attention to it. And by the time Dee finally came back, half of his library was gone. Like they just stole his books. They just never brought them back. That's stealing. Pretty much. So he, they stole his books. Yeah. That's, that's disappointing, but again, not surprising when you have someone that doesn't care. They feel no obligation. <laughs> but interesting point. Dee's wife, is it Jane? I think it was Jane. Um, was actually, yes, uh, yeah, Jane, Jane. Fromund. Uh, was actually queen, one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting. Mm-hmm. Which you have to get special permission from the queen in order to marry. Yes. So also very much into with the queen for getting that kind of permission as well. At that time, he was very much in favor with the queen when he married he was yeah. he was like at the top of her list of people that she relied on. Yeah, it, it's amazing how much he gets skipped over in the history books with how much she relied upon him. Actually, I think. Well, we were gonna we'll, we'll get to it, and I'm sure in another episode. But Samuel Pepys doesn't get talked about that often either, and he was incredibly influential during the Restoration. Oh yeah, let's not even get into that part yet. <laughs> but I'm just talking about D himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about the people she relied on, uh, and it's amazing. You know, you had Dudley and and Cecil and... Tons of others. Tons of others, but, like, D just kind of slips under the radar. Yeah. Just a little bit, and it's just amazing for him to have 
picked out her specific coronation date and still be passed over. Uh, it is what it is, mm-hmm. but it's just, nope. Now, nope. while Dee and Kelly were having what essentially were seances where Edward Kelly would at very least likely pretend to, if not actually channel the angels during these sessions and then relay his information to, to Dee, who would write it down in this angelic language, as he called it. They were, Kelly had mentioned that he was told by the angels that the magic that the two of them used would give them superhuman powers to its practitioners, change the political structure of Europe, and herald the coming of the apocalypse. Sounds a bit con. It's Edward Kelly. (laughs) It's already a con. Kelly was known for his cons, and if you're in it for the money, basically anything and everything you do is a con. Let's just face it. I, I think... I personally believe from everything we've read that John Dee put his faith in the worst person he possibly could. Well, we haven't even gotten to the worst part yet. Oh, no. So as the two of them were traveling around the continent and performing these fortune tellings, essentially, for wealthy patrons and kings and other noblemen, Edward Kelly started getting a fancy for John Dee's very much younger wife. Jane was 23 when they married. He was 51. But by all accounts, they had a very happy marriage. They had about eight children and were very happy with each other. But being quite so young, Kelly, who I think was only about 10 years younger than Dee, but took a fancy to Jane. Now, Kelly was already married to his wife, Joanna. And at one point, they were having a seance. I think they were in Bohemia or Poland at this time, to where Kelly relates to Dee that he, in his channeling that the angel said, we should have a wife swap. The divine says that we should have a wife swap. You will sleep with my wife, and I will sleep with your wife. And Kelly was kind of adamant that this is what the angels told him. Dee and his wife Jean were like, um, no, no, I really don't want to do that. Especially Jane, like, I don't want to do that. But Kelly, or, or Dee said, well, if it's, if it's divine and it's coming from the angels and the heavens are telling us to do this, I guess it's something we have to do. And they did. This and is, this is like facepalm worthy stupidity on Dee's part. This... Yeah. To trust a con man and then say yes to a wife swap when you're very happily already married. It, do, it gets a little worse than that. Ugh. They not soon, not long after Jane becomes pregnant with their son Theodore, who it's it's debatable debatable it's whether that's Dee's. actually Kelly's son. That's even worse. I'm not. I think Kelly has reached the lowest of the low point at that point. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't very long. I think maybe even just weeks after this whole wife swap issue that Dee and Jane said, nope, we're going to go back to England. I want to go back to, the, to Elizabeth and be back in court. We're kind of done with this. Uh, I thought you were real, but I, after this, I, I don't want any more of this. I'm surprised he didn't say that before he gave up his his wife to Kelly. I would be like, no, well, you, you sound like the fraud that you're said to be. Well, we think that in modern terms, but think back then, religion and 
religion is very much the everyday for most people, especially the everyday, Catholicism. But so is, but he's already a convicted fraud at this point. Deep may or may not have known that. I'm not, I don't I would, know. It all depends. If he's really persuasive, he may not have told him sure. the right truth. That's sad. I mean, I'm thinking like Wickham telling Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice how he was wronged by Darcy, Darcy put but it, it really wasn't, and he was lying his face off. And she believed him without getting the other story. True. Right. True, true. Right. But also, you know, right, so here's the story that we both have that we're like, Hmm, we have different patrons. But right after Dee left, I have that Kelly continued... Was, they were already under the patronage of Count... Bohemian Count Willem Rosenberg. Dee left. Kelly continued to stay under Rosenberg's uh, patronage, and he was claiming right and left that he could turn any base metal into gold. I feel like we're in in a Rumpelstiltskin here, <laughs> except instead of um, instead of what is it wheat wheat into gold or whatever, hay. Rumpelstiltskin turns something. Oh into gold. oh, a straw. Straw. That's it. Thank you. Instead of turning straw into gold, we're turning a base metal into gold. And he was doing well, living it up until uh, Willem Rosenberg was noticing that he wasn't actually performing. He wasn't turning any base metal into gold. And Rosenberg became very annoyed. <laughs> he had been he waiting. He threatened to jail him. He And he successfully jailed him. At, at because he threatened him. He was like, you better start producing results. He never produced results. And Kelly got thrown into prison in the hopes that it would give him a, like kind of like a kick in the backside. As in, you didn't do it, here's your punishment, give me a promise that you'll do it, which Kelly did promise, um, and he did promise that he would finally produce these results of base metal into gold. Gold will make the Duke rich. Count, sorry, not Duke, count. Um, And Kelly was released. However, he continued to never produce said results and ended up imprisoned again. To which he tried escaping, and during that escape attempt, he was killed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you had it that it was the Holy Roman Emperor. Rudolph II, yeah. But it's, it's entirely possible that during the patronage of Rosenberg, he met the Holy Roman Emperor, but I had read that he was under the patronage yeah. of Rudolph II. Yeah, so we just have different patrons. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the 1500s. We don't have exact Yeah. And then, but by the time he was gone doing a lot of his seances with Kelly across the European continent, when he and Jane had gotten back to England, he had been gone so long, he had lost favor with Queen Elizabeth, who he wanted to be back in her good graces. She goes, well, I'm not really interested in you anymore, but because I have respect for you, I'll give you this appointment ship. He became warden of Manchester College in 1596. And even continued that into the first few years, I think, of James I, who took over in 1603 after Elizabeth. Yeah. But not long after James I took over, he goes, I don't want to work under this. I don't feel that this is, this is below me to do. Mm-hmm. And he essentially retired to, to Mortlake to where he died in 1608. 
Yeah, I also have it that James James the First of England, James the Sixth of Scotland, they're one and the same people, person, uh, actually didn't believe in any of the occult things that John Dee put forward that kind of pushed him with in favor with Elizabeth the First, actually, and ended up basically being kicked out completely at the end of the day. James was just like, I'm, I don't believe in any of this and you need to go. You know, he, he basically leaves and then I have that he died. I have two reports on, on when he died, actually, and that it's disputed. One account said that he died in Mortlake, you know, his home in December of 1608. And another account that says he died in the following March, so March 1609, at his friend John Pontois's house. Pontois, Pont... Pontois, I don't know how to pronounce that, P-O-N-T-O-I-S. And so he died in literal poverty. Yeah. <laughs> this this man who had been made very famous and did very well at the beginning, but I mean he did leave for something, what, seven, eight years? Yeah, I think around eight years. I think it was seven, eight years, like fifteen eighty to fifteen eighty nine, something like that. Yeah. I mean, when you leave for seven, eight years and you leave a court, a lot of ha- things happen. So I'm not surprised that she just went, you hold no interest for me anymore. True, true. Um, but during his the height of his career, so by the time he had essentially, I, I don't know that he published anything while on travels through the continent, but during his time, at least up to there, it, he wrote 49 books in yeah. his entire career. And we're talking... Renaissance texts, yes. which are long-winded and large. I mean... And I, a lot of illustrations, usually. Yes. So they take time to actually write. Printing press was just barely becoming a thing at the time. And you, most of the stuff was still by hand. And 49 books is a lot of books, books to have written by that time. Now, some of them could have been small pamphlets, but no, indeed... He had, he, had, he, had, he had one, <laughs> he had an entire book that was just called the Hieroglyphic Monad, which he believed he had found or possibly created a single math magical symbol that was the key to unlocking the unity of nature. This book was in three parts mm-hmm. and literally an entire book discussing this one mathematical Symbol. And yes, I said math and magical, so it's math and magic. Well, there's not only that, he also wrote the summary of the Commonwealth of Britain. That's right, that was a report he wrote for the government. It's huge. I mean, it, it basically stated what Britain as a nation was facing, all the issues and problems that they needed to fix and how to fix them. Right. It, it, it's he, extensive. He was, he was one of the very first proponents of... England claiming the new world mm-hmm. and claiming parts around the known world. He was actually the first person to publish the term British Empire. empire. And Britain did become an empire, I mean. Well, it, it claimed a lot of new worlds, a lot of new places in the new world, for sure. We're, and, we're sitting on one of them. Right. And, and in addition to that, because he was so popular with Queen Elizabeth... And also quite known, particularly throughout the London area, if not known throughout the whole country, it's actually believed, and I think there's good basis for it, that 
Shakespeare's character of Prospero and the Tempest is based off of John Dee, and Christopher Marlowe's character of Dr. Faustus is also based off on of John Dee, which that one I can certainly see more so, but I can see the Pro Prospero being based off of John Dee. To be honest, I haven't read that version of Shakespeare. I haven't read that particular Shakespearean play. I've read all the others. Did you know there's an opera? About John Dee? <laughs> I did not know about the opera. What? So back in, uh, well, it, 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 I guess it aired, I mean, what do you call an opera? It, it, it opened in 2011. The, there's Damon Albarn and Jamie Hewlett of the Gorillas, plus comic book writer Alan Moore collaborated in writing Dr. D in English opera, which is an opera about the life of John Dee. Well, is it still active? Uh, well, not at the moment because nothing's well, active. <laughs> nothing's <laughs> active currently. I don't. The pandemic, I, I couldn't find if it was still running. I never heard of it. It'd be nice to know. I'd, so I'd I'm like not to sure. See it. I'd like to see it if once the pandemic ends. There might be clips online. I'm not sure. We could find out. But an interesting note of something that we will have a picture of in our notes. There was back in the. Early Victorian times, uh, or sorry, late Victorian, early Edwardian, there was a famous painting of John Dee where he is performing in front of Elizabeth and her court. There's a goblet that's on fire, essentially, in front of him. He's performing a magic trick for her. Mm -hmm. And modern scholars have actually taken that picture and x rayed it because they wanted to restore it, and they found underneath an entire different sketch where instead of John Dee standing in front of Elizabeth with the goblet on fire, it was John Dee standing in front of Elizabeth surrounded by a circle of skulls. More necromancy. Very cool. Very cool. And then on top of that, back in 1873, so very long after, 100, 100 and, like 170 years or so after John Dee had died, a spiritualism was massively big in the Victorian era. Yeah. And there was a very well-famous uh, medium named William Stanton Moses who actually claimed to be able to channel John Dee in several different sessions. And the details that he was able to acquire during these channelings have actually been corroborated with documents at the British Museum. Very interesting. And you want to know the most interesting thing I could find? What? This one's really cool. So, obviously, we said Enochian is an angelic language. It was sort of lost a bit, but then became more popular as John Dee became a bit more popular, particularly during the Victorian times. And during the late 1890s and into the early 1900s, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn had been formed. And this was, I think, in around the same time that Aleister Crowley came into her Hermetic Order as well, too. Mm -hmm very interesting person, but they actually adopted the Enochian language into their religion because their religion is based off of magic. Yep. Very interesting religion. And to have even more fun with it, they took the Enochian language as well as various other zodiac symbols and such and created not only a divination game, but also a chess game out of it. And we will have a link in our show notes to a video that shows you how to play Enochian chess. It seems really interesting. I don't know that I'd be very good at playing it, but I think I'd like to give it a crack. I'm already horrible at chess. Why not? <laughs> Let's just be horrible at Enochian chess, too. Why not? 
Might as well at least enjoy it. <laughs> you don't have to be good at something to enjoy it. I'm terrible at bowling, but I still enjoy it. Exactly. <laughs> at least at least you can enjoy it. So As long as you're having fun. That's all that matters. Like I said, enjoy it. Well, that's all but I seem to have tonight. That's all I have for, for our lovely John D., and so that'll be for that'll be all for this episode of History Explains It All. So you can find us on iTunes, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you Spotify. get your of Spotify, any place you get your uh, your podcast at. And we also have a Facebook page, History Explains It All, and our Gmail is historyexplainsitall at gmail.com. Actually, it's historyexplainsall at gmail.com. Sorry, guys. And we'll be also posting our... Show notes. Are we having an Instagram posting up soon? Yes, we'll also have an Instagram up and running, hopefully by the time this episode airs. So I'll put it in on the... I'll put a link to it on the Facebook page as well. And once so it's up and running, we should be able to add that to our main page, too. Yeah. So that'll be all. Yeah. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, feel free to contact us. At either our Facebook page email, or our Instagram. email. Yep. Please, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And we hope to see you next time. On History Explains It All. Bye. Bye.